If you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 John. Last week was supposed to be the final. In fact, where is, where's Paul McClure right now? I lied, brother. You asked me if it was the last Sunday, and brother, I was so ready. Like, we got done with that verse. I felt like we had, you know, expounded its, its meaning. Um, coming to this exhortation that we are not to idolize. And there it was. Uh, but throughout the week... I realized that though I was ready to let the text go, the text itself was not ready to let me go. Um, I kept ruminating on this exhortation, and if this really is the grandfatherly wisdom to the church, and his exhortation is, little children, dear ones, flee from idolatry, then, then, then we've got to give it more attention. And how so? Well... Friends, I just thought all throughout this week about my own conversion, coming to Christ, and my turning from sin and repentance that's ongoing in my life, and, and really the, the realization of the exhortation I gave you last week that, that the, the way away from idolatry is to meditate, to think about the perfections of God, and, and how helpful and beneficial that's been in my own life. And I realize that that's not something we do systematically as a topical type uh, study on Sunday mornings often. Um, we may touch on the attributes of God as we go along, but stopping to gaze at the, the, the beauty and the majesty of God is not something that we often um, do. And so, that's what I want us to do, not only this Sunday, but for several Sundays to come. I want us to consider the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in light of the attributes of God. That we might set and allow, listen, our culture has allowed John 3.16 to sink deep into our memory. And I want that verse, that God has so loved the world that He's given His only Son, I want that to also have in your mind room for this exhortation, for this encouragement to keep yourself from idols. So with that in mind, would you honor the reading of God's Word and stand this morning for who knows how much longer that we are in this text. John writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit of Almighty God, wanting us to know the Creator that keeps us from idolatry. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life 
to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true, and in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning asking that You would write this verse on all of our hearts. Father, that You would continue to do Your work of sanctification by the power of Your Spirit. That You would demonstrate in this age, in this church, in our homes and in our lives, the power of Your majesty to overtake darkness. Father, might we be worshipers in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. As we come to the mountainous understanding of the attributes of God and start to work our way through, I want us to start with this grand starting point of the glory of God. And as we begin, I want you to know that this week, as I considered, there's two things that are a little unsettling to me in this exercise over the next several weeks. One is that a study of the attributes of God is not necessarily going to be explicitly expositional. It's going to be more topical. I hope to do it in an expositional fashion. That is from the text. Um, But the other thing is if we're going to consider the glory of God, you have to understand that your preacher this morning feels a little bit like a kindergarten art student that has been asked to paint with tempera paint a copy of the Mona Lisa. It is beyond my ability to exhaust this particular subject, the glory of God. It's beyond uh, my ability in 40 minutes to convey to you what we mean when we talk about God's glory because it is something that cannot be captured in images or in words. And it's not something that ultimately is only understood with the mind, but is also imparted through the power of the Spirit, our teacher, Almighty God to the heart, into the very depths of who we are. But where we start this morning, I think, is helpful to come to an understanding of glory in general. I think at times we miss biblical understanding of things because we look at their near definition or we fail to look at the near definition. We fail to realize that there are there is a way of defining things in the temporary world and then there's also a definition when it comes to God. And so it's, it's behooves us to draw upon the distinction. And so as we do that this morning, we'll start by coming to the Queen's Dictionary, the Oxford English Dictionary, and looking at some of the definitions, just a few. There are, if I remember, over eight, and I'm not going to read all eight, but one way that the Oxford English Dictionary uh, records uh, the, the, the definition of glory is the disposition to claim honor for oneself, a boastful spirit. This is where we get the word vainglory. 
This is kind of the braggart, the individual that wants all of the glory, and generally, most often, for the least amount of energy. There is also the way of understanding uh, glory in this sense, also defined in the Oxford English Dictionary, to be exalted, and in a modern sense, merited, praise, honor, and admiration, accorded by common consent to a person or thing, honorable fame or renown. There are, what I want us to understand, some sense of earthly glory, and we've seen this in our uh, headlines over the past week as we have seen since the Queen's demise the state funeral in Scotland and the one that will come tomorrow. We've seen the lines, I, I hope some of you have, of hundreds of thousands of people night and day filing past this 96-year-old woman's coffin. And why? All of that is done to show honor to the Queen. For, for generations, she has been there and she has always exuded a sense what the ceremony and the pomp and the circumstances have been there as a way to exude that there is a glorious reality to the monarch. And there's always been for generations an appropriate and an inappropriate way of responding to her. I don't know if you saw in the news this week uh, the individual who thought it would be a good idea to rush the casket of the queen. Found out that wasn't a good idea. There is, in a sense, and I want you to understand, it's a lower sense, a type of earthly glory. But here is a woman who, when she was 25 years old, and I don't know that I would trust a 25-year-old to take care of a goldfish, but she devoted her whole life, whether it be long or short, to the service of her people. And she's carried through on that pledge. It's, it's interesting, as I sat and wrote this sermon, on my desk is a brick, a, a block of parliament that was broken away during the Second World War, and it has on it, and blazoned the effigy of Winston Churchill. And, and it kind of, it was, it, well, it was amusing to me to remember, if you're a student of history, that when Queen Elizabeth II came to the throne, Winston Churchill wasn't really sure that she was up to the task. He thought, what in the world, this 25-year-old girl, what is she going to do? Or as, as I finished with that thought, I thought about C.S. Lewis, who, when it came to the Queen's coronation, said, I'll pass. And he, he said later, his reasons for not going were simply, well, the weather was poor, and I hate crowds, and I would have had to dress up. Later, he wrote, about a month after her coronation, you know, over here, people did not get the fairy tale feeling about the coronation. What impressed most who saw it was the fact that the queen herself appeared to be quite overwhelmed by the sacramental side of it. Hence, in the spectators, a feeling of awe or pity or pathos or mystery, the, the pressing of that huge, huge and heavy crown on that small young head becomes a sort of symbol of the situation of humanity itself. Humanity called by God to be His vice-regent and high priest on earth, yet feeling so inadequate as if God had said, in my inexorable love, I will lay upon the dust that you are glories and dangers and responsibilities beyond your understanding. Do you see what I mean? One has missed the whole point unless one feels that we have been crowned 
and that the coronation is somehow, if splendid, a splendid, a, a tragic splendor. I think over the past week's events, and I think about these two great men who 70 years ago looked at this 25-year-old woman and thought, there is no glory here. There is nothing that is going to carry through the monarch. She's not up to the task. Which really, I think, I think lends itself in a direction of us understanding that sometimes it's hard for us to understand what should we bring glory to and what shouldn't we. Um, what should we honor and what shouldn't we? I think that's part of the reality of the fall. We kind of misunderstand and miss the mark of glory. But that all pushes us in the near context of glory. And glory comes to uh, athletes and to statesmen and to poets and to all kinds of people. There is a sense in which we look at the work of another and it brings not the same all that we have of God, but a reverence for what we have beheld. I, I think all of this, though, pushes us, as someone who wrote for the Banner of Truth wrote, uh, explained, to consider a greater glory, as this author, unattributed, writes, in her final breath, her literal expiration, is all an invitation to look upwards and beyond her, the Bible reveals that there is one whose reign, unlike that of Elizabeth II, is entirely beneficent, it's entirely righteous, universal, and it will be everlasting. The prophet Isaiah speaks of the Lord Jesus in these terms, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. Our King is really full of glory. And so we come to an understanding first that glory is the essential part of who God is. When we come to this understanding of God's glory as the essence of who He is, as we travel back in our minds to Exodus 33 and we find there Moses, this young man who has been set apart to lead the nation, and in some sense he says, God, I don't want to lead this stiff-necked people. And God says, Moses, I will go with you. My glory will be there. And Moses says there in Exodus 33, you'll remember, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all of my goodness, this is God speaking, pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. And the question is, what is this glory? How do we understand it? Herman Bovink 
rightly said, the glory of the Lord is the splendor and the brilliance that is inseparably associated with all of God's attributes and His self-revelation in nature and grace. The glorious form in which He everywhere appears to His creatures. And he goes on to say, God's glory is often associated with His holiness and hence also described as fire and as a cloud. Undoubtedly, it referring to the fire and that cloud, Scripture had in mind the visible creaturely forms through which God manifested His presence. The case is different with light with which the glory of God is often compared and in terms of which it is often represented. Light in Scripture is the image of truth and holiness and blessedness. If we were to rewind back a few verses before Moses asked, show me your glory to the living glorious God, we see in verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak to Moses. The Jewish people would go on to have a theology believing that, that, that somehow there was this body of the Spirit, a kingdom of the glory of God, the eternal kingdom of heaven, in which the power of God is fundamental and tinctured by brilliance and energy of fire and light. What Moses had longed to see was the essence of God's glory, the core of the glory of God in the face of God. We find that all throughout Scripture, the, the verb that is used or translated for God's glory means to be heavy or weighty, a significant, referring to a person who is important. It also denotes the splendid appearance of one whose name is known far and wide while describing the splendor and beauty of that appearance subjectively, the recognition of a person receives or is entitled to receive the fame or honor that that person enjoys. Is your brain going, whoa? I hope so. Augustine said, whatever is insofar as it has being true and good and beautiful, that is the glory of God's, God's glory, beloved, is not, and this is what I think that we far too often come to, God's glory is not one of His attributes. God's glory is not something of who He is. It is the sum total of who He is. God's glory is what He is. Everything that He is, is glory, glorious. And it is manifested in His attributes, which we will be studying but also in His works. Anything that God does is glorious because it is in His nature to do it. Mark that in your brain. Anything that God does on this planet, regardless of human conjecture and opinion, is glorious. When Moses here asks God to show him His glory, the Hebrew leader is asking that God would reveal to him who He is, the very essence of His being. And the Lord responds by proclaiming His name Yahweh in front of Moses. This self-designation in, in, in Hebrew literally means I am that I am. 
My glory is my glory. There is a sense in which the glory of God is beyond all definition and it will not be captured in all of our worship throughout all of eternity. But here there are three things about the nature of God that he goes on in Exodus chapter 33 to explain. First, that God is who He is, that He is self-existent and independent of His creation. Second, that He is immutable and unchanging. And finally, that He... that. Um, His being is eternal. He is glorious, beloved, in all that He is. In His omnipotence, His being all-powerful, He creates all things out of nothing. He whispers, and the stars are flung in the skies, and the planets are called into being, and man is formed. Out of nothing, God has created everything. That is glory. In His omniscience and wisdom, He has set the seasons. He has planned the entire epics of history. He has ordained all that comes to pass and the working of all things as scientists look in to the creative work of God in in the natural world around us. There is one word under every study and that is glory. In His mercy, He provides that which we do not deserve. And there we find glory. In His immutability, we know that His plans are fixed and His counsels are sure and His promises are enduring. Glory. In His kindness of sending His Son, we will see there is glory. His glory, Thomas Watson notes, is the sparkling of His deity. God's life lies in His glory and it cannot be increased or decreased since it is already infinite, unchangeable, and eternal. That just sparked a thought. I might butcher this. C.S. Lewis, I think it was, that said, um, we can no more diminish the glory of God by refusing to worship Him then a lunatic can blot out the sun by writing insanity on his cell wall. We do not increase or decrease God's glory. It is infinite and it is found in Him. In fact, that's what Colossians, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, for Him, that is Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. All of His works are good and they all are glorious and they all point to God. Now, someone might stop at this point and say, Jay, wait a minute. You just said... You just said that all of everything, that's a big statement, that God does is glorious. And we just read in the Apostles' Creed and affirmed, whence He shall come, that is Christ, to judge the living and the dead. There is a day of wrath coming. Are you telling us that the wrath of God is even glorious? And the answer is absolutely. We were created in righteousness with a bent to worship God and bring Him the glory that is due His name. Lewis, as I mentioned earlier, writing about the Queen, says humanity was called by God to be His vice-regent and high priest on earth, yet we feel so inadequate. Why? Why? 
And then he goes on to say that in God's love, He has crowned us with glories and dangers and responsibilities beyond our understanding. We were called vice-regent to rule under the care of God. The glory was belonging to God the Father and the Son and to His Spirit from the foundation of time that doesn't develop over human history. Jesus, the, the, the triune God is who He is glorious in His divine essence. And we are called and created to give God glory. But seemingly we don't do that anymore. And the question is, what happened? What happened is that in being created to rule, we turned the entire kingdom over to Satan. When we read in verse 19 that the entire world lies in the power of the evil one, we cannot come to that verse and say, well, why did not God for His glory do something else? Friends, He gave us the kingdom. And we relegated it to Satan. And so now all that we see wrong in the world, all that is not glorious. And humanity, I know that when I talk in human terms of glory, there's uncomfortableness in this, in this room. And there's a reason for that. Because we've fallen from glory. Because we have, we have seen and known that there is a God and we've traded it in for the lies of Satan. And why is it today that our societies crumble, our homes falter? It is because we, not only did Adam do that. Don't have a theology that says, well, Adam's an idiot. Know that that is implanted now into your nature and you, without the grace of God, inevitably exchange the glory of God for the lies of Satan. And so in Romans chapter 1, Paul writes, warning, about the composition of humanity. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. No one has an excuse to not see the glory of God. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what did they do? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. God's glory is seen in all of creation. And what have we done? We have rejected it. And there is a coming judgment that is right and good against a human race that refuses to glorify and give thanks to their Creator. Now our generation would say that's too harsh. That's too light. Or, or that's too heavy. That's too unkind. My God would never judge. But do you hear in that statement a declaration we will reject even the glory of God in His judgment? But we know how the story ends. We know that the judgment comes. And here are the words that come from the saints of God after that judgment in Revelation 19. After this I heard what seemed like the voice of a multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! 
Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Beloved, sin will be judged under the wrath of God. It will be dealt with. The vast sum of humanity will perceive in a first-person reality for all of eternity the glory of God in the wrath of the Father. And if I were to end here, I think we would all have reason to hang our heads. But the story doesn't end here. In fact, the reality that God's wrath is set up against unrighteousness of which we are all unrighteous makes Christ all the more glorious. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 about our sanctification and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is Spirit. Think about that. We defied the living God and we also traded His glory for the lies of Satan. But in Christ's kindness, He sent His Spirit to waken us to His glory in such a way that now, today, at this moment, if you're in Christ, you're being conformed to that image. That's a reason to celebrate. That's a reason to rejoice. All hell can break loose and we have a reason to glory in God. And there are three particular, and one I'm gonna, I think I've hit in talking about the Father and the Spirit in His essence, but there really are three distinct glories that we can point to in Christ. And, and the first is His essential glory. That is, it is the essence of who Christ is. It is the foundation of everything that we find in Him. But Christ, there are, in Christ there are two other glories that we must think about. The second of Christ's glory is a personal glory. Jesus has a peculiar glory belonging to him alone. Even the Father and the Son, or the Spirit rather, do not possess this specific glory, for neither are truly God and truly man. In this, in, in this particular way, Christ is the, the God man, what theologians call a complex or a comprehensive person and thus we speak of Jesus having a particular personal glory in him we find the union of the divine and the human natures that leads Thomas Goodwin to describe such glory as the highest manifestation of the Godhead that could have been communicated to earthly creatures what does that mean it means that Christ makes the glory of God not only possible, not only is the glory of God the essence of God, but now it's a visible glory upon display in the person of Christ. John Arrowsmith, the Puritan, 
wrote that the glory of God is too dazzling for our weak eyes. And he has this illustration that I love. He, he says it, it's almost as though looking to the glory of God and in and, 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 and Moses being told, you can't look on my face alone. It's as if we understand that we can't look at the Son directly. But we can take in, in his Puritan world a wash basin and fill it with water and we can get glimpses of the sun through the reflection in the water. And so it is as we look to Christ, we behold the fullness of the glory of God. We see who he is. We come to that familiar passage in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, he says, I saw the Lord setting upon the throne high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temples. Above Him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. And with two He flew. And one called to the other saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His Glory And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So the question is, wait a minute. Moses couldn't see the glory of God, but Isaiah saw... The king. What did he see? Was he looking at the essence of the glory of God? That which Moses could not see? And the answer is no. What he saw there was our king. The Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ is glorious. And the issue of judgment that is coming, beloved, is not, is God loving. God loved the world enough to send His only Son, who in Christ is all of the fullness of glory. The question is, what does humanity do with that glory? And the answer comes from John, who wrote and told us not to idolize. John chapter, seven, uh, chapter 12, rather, you'll remember these words. Jesus speaking here, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said, uh, said that it had thundered. Couldn't hear it. Others said, an angel has spoken of him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. That you would know that I am the glorified one. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then a few verses later in verse 36, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe 
For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things, John writes, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. What does lost humanity do when the glorious person of the Lord Jesus Christ is accurately presented to them, unaided by the Spirit of God, humanity will reject Him every time. It is only when we are given the grace of eyes to see that we come to Christ. We are rejectors not only of glory, but we reject the King Himself. The third of Christ's form of glory that he possesses is a mediatorial glory. One that according to Thomas Goodwin was acquired, purchased, and merited by his work alone in obedience to the Father on behalf of sinners who would call upon his name. We call this theologically a super added glory for Christ's people. It is a super added glory because get this, not only does the Father reign in the essence of His glory and all of His attributes and the Spirit with Him, not only does Jesus have a personal glory revealing to us the glory of God, but third, there is this mediatorial glory that is super added to you and I. Though men reject Him, His church does not. In fact, we are told by Christ Himself that those belong to Him will hear His voice and they will follow Him. Not only do we see glory in Christ now, we see His glory radiating in the church. He has mediated part of His glory into the body. Listen to these, these words of, I believe, Herman Bavink. He says, as the bride of Christ receives the blessings of His work on their behalf, Christ receives glory as the fruit of His labor. That is, Jesus pours out His triumphants over sin and death upon us in blessing us, in sending His Spirit. And what happens as a result of that? We glorify God. The more blessings He pours out from heaven as the resurrected King of glory, the more that glory He gets. In fact, the more love Christ shows towards the church, the more love He shows for Himself. Because we must be reminded in Ephesians chapter 5 that the man who loves his bride loves also himself. The glory of God is found in the Trinitarian Godhead but also in His church as He mediates out His redemptive grace. I think one of the most arresting statements in all of Scripture is found in John 17 when He speaks here of His priestly office glorifying, of the glory being revealed in us. He, he, Jesus says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those who You have given Me. For they are yours, all mine are yours, yours are mine, I am glorified in them. Why is it that the modern church can't find glory in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? 
because they've been trashing the church for years. And it is in the church that we see the glory of Christ visible. Beloved, I want you to walk away today with this at the forefront of your mind. There really are only two ways in which humanity will experience the glory of God. One will be that most of humanity will experience the glory of God in the face of His wrath. There are these images, as we remember, of light and fire and of the cloud, and these are representative of God's glory in the Old Testament. You know there's one thing that is common to those things, and that is they are all-consuming. When lost humanity in their rebellion, having rejected the glory of God, they don't get a, a third category of we'll just be annihilated and non-existent they will still yet meet the glory of God in the full force of His wrath. But for you and I who are in Christ today, beloved, it is only in Christ that we are comforted, we are converted, and we are saved and not consumed. The other way that we know the glory of God is not in an ethereal special knowledge like the Gnostics. It's not in a perfect morality like the legalist. It's not through some academic pursuit. It is through the person and the work of Christ. It is by being born by the Spirit and into Christ. That is where we find our glory. There is a glory that we can speak of that is yet to come though. I, I just want you to get that glory isn't something, when we speak of glory, often it is a, a far distant, the coming of the kingdom of heaven, and that is right in some sense. But beloved, when we fellowship among the people of God, we see glory in the here and now. But the glory to come, C.S. Lewis points out that in that heavenly glory, is not conferred. He, he talks about, if you've never read The Weight of Glory, I, I recommend you doing that. It's a fantastic and it's short. It's very succinct. And it's one that I think people should read repeatedly. Uh, but he talks about that, that in his conception, he kind of viewed glory as something that was either... It, it's kind of funny. He, he talks about uh, glory as either us reaching after praise from men, which seems really out of place, or it's us just glowing and who wants to be a light bulb? Which I think is funny British humor. Um, but then he goes on to explain that he has understood that glory that comes from heaven in the final analysis is not conferred by, by our fellow creatures, but by our Creator. In the end, he says... That face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. There will be judgment or there will be redemption, he says. In the past week, one thing that has been speculated upon, listen, when someone of notable acclaim, when somebody that is receives honor dies, there's speculation in every corner of the globe. And that's not, um, that, that's no different in theological pastoral camps. And so there's this conversation of whether the late sovereign of England was in fact a true believer 
And there's this back and forth, and it always kind of, when we come to the question of someone else's salvation, I always go, we are meddling in something that we do not know. Now, I do think there's a way that's a whole different sermon for a whole different day, that we should be discerning and we can sense the fruit of the Spirit and all of those things. But we will know in time, won't we? We'll know in time who is redeemed and who is not. And it will not become because the individual has done glorious things on their own. It will only come because God has shown His glorious favor upon them. In fact, this whole speculative process of wondering whether or not the Queen of England was a Christian and is in glory today really brought my mind to another of C.S. Lewis's writings. In the Chronicles of Narnia, those of you who have read those works will remember that at one point, one of the, the, the leading characters, her name is Susan, gets on the train for, a last, uh, for the last time and we don't hear from her again. She's just kind of pushed off to the, the side, the peripheral of the, the narrative and never heard from again. And so it led... Uh, literature buffs to question C.S. Lewis, was this putting Susan upon a train and never speaking of her again a way to communicate that in the, in the narrative of the Chronicles of Narnia that she was not in fact a believer, that she had done something wrong to not merit Aslan's favor and would never be heard from again. And so they asked C.S. Lewis, they said, what, what, what did you mean to communicate by putting her on a train? And his response was, I only meant to communicate that her, well, that her journey is not over. And friends, so it is with all of us. When we come to death, our journey is not over. Our story goes on. There's merely this question about how does it end? And that is for God to write and for God to know. The glorious thing that John tells us is that we can know as well. Because we can know the living God. We can turn in repentant faith. And we can cling to Christ alone. It's not our wealth. It's not our political position. It's not our good works. It's not the charities. It's nothing that we can do that will bring us to salvation. It is only by believing on Christ and Christ alone that we are saved. And that only happens by the working of the Spirit of Almighty God. So I, for one... I'm kind of left to wonder if maybe, and I always hope the best for people, if maybe that dear old lady who passed away on September the 8th in Balmoral, who had dined and had danced with princes and potentates with all of the notable personalities throughout the past seven decades, who had held more gold than all of us, and who had served so well and for so long, did not drift from this life only to open her eyes to what glory really means. To rejoice in the person of the true King whose crown never fades and whose rule never ends. That she now, having left her crown, has seen the radiance of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the answer to all of these things is we will know in time. And some of you may struggle to even care about those modern events. But friends, what I want you to think through is not her end, but yours. Do you have joy in a world that lies in the power of the evil one because you have seen the glory of Christ and you have committed your life in repentance 
not just to your own goodness, but to the glory of his church, his body, his bride. C.S. Lewis says, and I'll leave you with this, in his work, The Weight of Glory, for glory means good report with God, acceptance with God, response, acknowledgement, and a welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all of our lives will one day open at last. Perhaps it seems rather crude to describe glory as the fact of being noticed by God. But this is almost the language of the New Testament when Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 promises to those who love God, not as we would expect that they will, be, that they will know Him, but that they will be known by Him. Does God know you today? Has He shown His favor into your life in such a way? Friends, this is how Christ shows His favor. He proves you to be a sinner. And He proves Himself to be more glorious than anything you'll ever find in this world. And with that, I leave you with this exhortation from John the Apostle. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. For the glory of God is ever before us. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence today so thankful for the images that You give us that point back to You. So thankful for Your Word that clearly relates the reality that we're all lost, that we've all exchanged Your glory for the things of this life, for our idols. Now Father, would You, by the working of Your Spirit, help us to see the goodness that You have poured out upon Your church in the face of Jesus Christ. And might we rejoice continually in who He is and what He has done for us in redeeming us from the fall, in, in, in bearing the weight of the penalty of our sin. And Father, if there's one in this room today that does not know You and has lived a life seeking to glorify themselves and idolize this earth, might You open their heart today and bring them glory, the glory of knowing Christ. In Jesus